Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Well, hello, Tom. How are you today? Hi, Russ. Doing well. How about yourself? Fine. I don't see a lot of changes in your background, except perhaps you've hung some new papers up. So I don't know, you know, is your, is your, your back home life kind of not being as active as everybody calming down because it's getting more towards summer or maybe, more towards maybe. autumn? Yeah. I'm thinking, I'm thinking the changes are in my mind. That's where the, that's the where the real churn's going on. That's a possibility. <laughs> yeah. And today we are joined by Micah Beck who is just around the corner from here, me here in Knoxville. For those of you who don't know where I live, I am in the Knoxville area. Hey, which reminds me, if you're ever in Knoxville, you should come uh, find some time to hang out. Uh, I don't know. Uh, just, you know, I work from home, so I was just talking about how I need to get out of the house every now and again. It's a nice thing. Not that I don't get out of the house a lot, but um, anyway, I do get down on UTK's campus, and Micah is from UTK. And I think you do something else as well, right, Micah? You do something other than teach at UTK. No, well, not really. No, that's that's my that's my gig at this point. I've done other things, but uh, at okay. this point, it's uh, it's it's the UTK uh, lecturing. Okay. All right. And he's at the Department of Electrical and, and Engineering, Computer, and Comp Sci there at UTK. So anyway, what we're going to talk about today is universal broadband service. And there is a lot of effort, uh, if people have been watching in the United States anyway, there's been a lot of stuff about the bead grants and trying to get fiber built everywhere. I have a good friend who is building his own ISP, Jared Motch, because he called Comcast and tried to get uh, high-speed access to his house. And they said that'll be $80,000. And he said... For $80,000, I can build an ISP. So he built an ISP, and he is actually providing service to several hundred of his neighbors and rolling fiber right now out to their houses and local churches and businesses because he just said, enough is enough if I'm spending 80 grand. <laughs> if I'm spending 80 grand, I'm going to figure out how to make it into an investment. So that's kind of crazy, but... That seems to be where we are right now with broadband. Um, I don't have fiber to my house. Um, I'm on copper. I know Mike was just saying that he's on copper as well. So all of that said, I mean, talk to me about what you're saying here, Mike. What What is the background of what you're talking about and um, how that interacts with the idea of broadband and what broadband means to you? Okay, so a little bit of background. I won't go, I've been working on this. This is a, a topic that I've been working on for 20 years plus. I'm not gonna give you all the background. That's that's gonna take too long, but I'll give you the, the point of origin, which was um, here in Tennessee, when the web started becoming uh, uh, more common and something that people wanted to use uh, in schools and uh, uh, in businesses, I had a look at the web and realized there was an issue with reaching rural schools in Appalachia in particular and rural uh, public institutions. And so I took an interest in uh, the idea of initially caching, uh, using, using storage caches as a means of uh, staging uh, content at schools and creating 
using them something like a, a digital library, but more dynamic uh, because they they do have connectivity, just not at the time adequate for rich web content. That was that was before content delivery networks. So so my work was sort of going hand in hand, parallel to that emergence of that network. Um, I got interested. Caching was not sufficient in replication of servers, which also goes along with the, the CDN model. of, of And, and um, ultimately, I became interested in, the, in the, the problem that that approach was kind of expensive and difficult uh, from an engineering point of view to scale. And I got interested in my research in the idea of, of integrating storage with scalable networking in a way that would be more, us to treat it more like bandwidth. And so the question emerges, okay, you know, what are the what are the impediments to including storage and ultimately processing in the infrastructure, not attached to the infrastructure in, in private facilities to, to make it more possible to move data effectively and get it to places where we don't have uh, excellent infrastructure or where there's been disruption. So I I uh actually been working in this, this general area. It, it turns out it has applications, not just in, in places with uh, connectivity challenges, but also in environments where you have good connectivity, but huge data, uh, data scientific, uh, uh, data intensive science. So that's how I managed to get funding and to pursue it for 20 years, because I really couldn't get funding for an acceptance of this idea of of uh, essentially using what I now call open CDN, uh, a use of storage and processing to overcome uh, issues in infrastructure. So that that's the background, uh, and I've been been essentially working on the idea of how to how to integrate this with the internet environment, particularly one in which, as you point out, the mainstream story is at the high end in the industrialized countries, in the heart of uh, big cities where there's a lot of infrastructure, excellent bandwidth, and we're pushing the limits of what we can do with that. My assertion is that, in fact, uh, that very process is making it harder to reach everyone. That's interesting. Yeah. The more we raise the bar, the more we tend to exclude people around the edges. Yeah. So it's it's interesting to me as well, because I was working with um, Telepost Greenland for a while, trying to get uh, some sort of internet access of any kind out to the villages ranging along the west coast of the Greenland mass, which, if you know much about Greenland, one thing you know is it's all rock and ice, and there's no way to bury cable. And the second thing is, is that the distances are huge. I mean, there are villages, the closest village to Nook is a day's boat ride at fairly high speed away. And you can't get there by car because there are no roads. So there's just, there, there's nothing but microwave. And usually it's VSAT, it's small, it's small aperture um, microwave. And it's not very reliable because anytime a big storm hits, which is all the time, everything goes down. So really caching, local caching and building some type of local stuff is is the only way to do things but then you don't really have good power sources in these villages either so caching becomes its own set of problems because you got to run those servers 24 by 7 to make it worthwhile 
And so you run into this whole set of problems that are very difficult to deal with. Uh, so I think that's very true. We tend to focus on the high end, which causes us problems on the low end. Uh, and the other thing is, is now that everybody's working from home, we've made the problem a lot worse as well, right? Right. So, so, so here's the, from a technical point of view, here is the sort of uh, the, the network speak proposal, okay, that it's boiled down to. And so it, it, it turns out it's, it's can be expressed in kind of a simple way, which is um, what if we had a form of service, I call it basic broadband, but it's arguable whether people would really consider it broadband. It's internet connectivity service, which simply has no upper bound on latency and no minimum level of connectivity even, of availability, um, except statistical, the way we do with bandwidth. But, but, but that, to take off the assumption of continuous connectivity and to, to uh, take off the idea of any kind of a interactive bound on latency. And so the claim I make, and uh, I have a, a, a cup paper that's coming out uh, in the IEEE uh, conference uh, in October, but it's available now on the web. The assertion is that basically through the use of storage and processing at the edge, you can actually do almost everything you would want to do with broadband except teleconferencing and remote gaming, that is telepresence and highly interactive applications. But that we use low latency and continuous connectivity, it's a crutch uh, for other applications. It's there because that's how the internet was defined. And of course, it makes things very simple when you have it, but that in fact, we can do everything, including high bandwidth streaming, um, and less, in, less intense forms of interaction, slower with delays, but that those can all be implemented without those. And that if we did it, it would make the deployments of networks, of those kinds of networks, uh, easier, cheaper, perhaps to the point that we would not have to charge for it, at least for non-commercial applications, for e-commerce, for e-government, for remote education, telehealth, the things that are really critical needs that the UN uh, calls human rights. Uh, they aren't talking necessarily about free immersive metaphors. They're talking about the ability to apply for a job, the ability to uh, get agricultural information, things that, that today everyone on the planet needs to uh, survive. Okay, so a couple of questions perhaps on this. The first is, this feels similar to name data networking, if you're familiar with that term, in some ways. How would you characterize it? Is it different, a lot different than name data networking, or is it kind of similar but a different application, or how would you relate that? So name data networking is a, a whole alternate routing and, and naming uh, scheme, okay, which one could put, one can put that on top of current internet broadband. It, you could put it on top of this and use this for connectivity. 
The idea here is, is not to, um, to, to make the choices of what the overlay networks or applications that use this have to look like, but just really to focus on the transmission capabilities. Because that's the part that uh, I claim give you the engineering advantage. And, and that engineering advantage is, is well known to people who have extreme needs for connectivity, as you pointed out, places that are very remote. But also, I don't know if uh, you're, you're familiar with, you know, Amazon has a need to move uh, hundreds of petabytes uh, between large customers and their data centers, I think perhaps between their data centers. And that is enough data that even with their networks, moving it across fiber is, is not really the most uh, uh, best way to do it and, and has real issues with getting that much data correctly from one to the other. They have a service called Snowmobile where they put 100 petabytes of uh, solid state disk on a truck and they load it up and, and drive it from one place to another. The point about that is that's a very specialized service but you can look at it as very high latency, but very high bandwidth connectivity. So there are cases where you can be very creative with the kinds of technologies you use for transmission if you're willing to put up with uh, these kinds of different communication characteristics. Yeah, which reminds me of Tannenbaum's station wagon full of VHS backup tapes, yep. <laughs> which I've updated a couple of times in a couple of books I've written about, you know, a small FedEx box full of USB thumb drives or, or micro SD cards, right? The bandwidth is incredible just on a small, you just take even a smaller medium-sized FedEx box, fill it with micro SD cards. What are they like, you know, a terabit each now or something like that? How many of those things would fit in a medium-sized FedEx box and you can overnight it? Like, wow. <laughs> exactly. And, and there are, are many other cases where uh, people take advantage of that in an ad hoc manner, but it's not, it's, it's not integrated with networking and it's not automated in the way that network data movement and uh, use of data that comes over the network is. Um, but there's really no reason why it couldn't be. Um, and and this, this also has a lot in common with things that people have done in mobile ad hoc networking. There are uh, research and work that has been done in this area, but it's always been in very, considered very specialized and outside of the mainstream. Um, and the reason for that is the mainstream has always just had an assumption that constant connectivity and low latency was a, a necessary precondition to a networked environment. And uh, so that, that's the question is, is that, is that a either historical fact that, that comes from where the, how the internet was developed? And, uh, and perhaps, you know, this is just a suggestion, that puts a lot of money in the pockets of telecoms companies, which wouldn't necessarily be going there if, uh, we've had a truly universal, but more, let's say, asynchronous form of service that served all the needs other than telepresence and, and remote gaming and and that kind of uh, application. Yeah, so, so that was going to be my question. So how does 
because those things do exist in the world. They're not the majority, probably. Um, but what is um, in in your thinking? How does that world of interactive um, low latency requirements? How does it fit in with the other the the other other bulk of the world that doesn't need low latency? Do you envision two networks, um, or do you envision sort of a QoS sort of arbitrated way that they fit together? Or what, what do you think? I think either of those is possible. I mean, one of the nice things is that you can you can make that choice at the edge and and that you know you have open allowing these high latencies and these other characteristics opens up many more possibilities for backbone connectivity so you could you could have various approaches but i would just point out i don't know if you're familiar with what's going on uh in, in uh, developments uh, there's an itf working around ultra low uh, latency uh, networking that that's integrated with the internet, and the way it works there is akin to the way that uh, quality of service works. Essentially, you have uh, marks on the packets that either say allow buffer bloat or run a, a network with with minimal latency, and you run it uh, in the same routers. Is the idea? Uh, so that's certainly a possibility. Um, and it is a, in some sense, it is thought there to be a form of differential service, which because it's pretty weak, it's not putting a lot of guarantees as, as we do with bandwidth reservation, that it can coexist with scalable networking. I think this could be like that, but you could also have forms of connectivity that, that I mean, are completely separate from the form that brings you true broadband. And, and they can be integrated at the local area network. I don't think that's a very difficult technical task. It takes some, some development. And I think that really is an open question about how that would happen. But, but one thing that, that is very clear is any place that already had low latency broadband, there would be no need to change anything. This would simply open up new uh, possibilities. I, I say very quickly and very cheaply, Here's, here's a, a, a thing that recently I saw was that part of the problem with subsidized uh, broadband is figuring out where it's needed, right? And that's often a problem with means-tested or needs-tested universal service of any kind is how do you figure out where it's needed? And what I'm suggesting, I think, may be uh, cheap enough and easy enough that it could be simply implemented everywhere uh, and, and truly universal. And uh, then the market could take care of what to do about low and ultra low latency uh, services, which obviously we still need. Uh, and we are going to be bringing to as much of the world as we can and we can afford. I think having this basic service universally available would only speed that, would only make the world readier and increase the demand for broadband. But I think there's a real question, as with other, frankly, expensive technologies, whether we, we really have the, the money and the will to, to bring the current model of broadband to everyone in the world, maybe not even everyone in the country. I, I was I was just thinking about kind of how edge concepts play into this. You know, obviously there's always going to be last mile cost, and that's not free, and it's 
painful and difficult and stuff. And so does, does this idea envision pushing the edge all the way into the CPE or, or even beyond that or. Absolutely. So, so the idea here is that, that you're going to replace the, this, the recurring cost of low latency uh, connectivity with more investment in the edge. As you, I, I would point you to streaming boxes and other you know, edge devices that are developing, they're developing on a, a purely, uh, uh, not purely proprietary, but because there is some sharing. Uh, you have platforms that are shared among applications, but they're still proprietary to you know, Roku, Apple, uh, they have their own uh, domains. Really, the idea would be to uh, unify those and make that part of the networking model. So even though I focus on the, the savings in the backbone, there are going to be costs at the edge to, to store and to do perhaps some processing as we can over time. But they're not going to be recurring costs. They're going to be capital costs. And so those are those have a different kind of profile, and hopefully, that is something which uh, continued improvements in density and uh, capacity of edge devices is going to make uh, better and better. So I think to some degree, though, we're fighting against a couple of natural human tendencies here, right? The first is that. Application developers don't want to deal with this complexity of having this stuff in their applications, right? They want to say, the network just does what I want it to do, blah, blah, blah. How do you overcome that kind of um, issue, so to speak? Okay, so now now we're getting into policy, right? Now we're getting into strategy and policy. So... Let's just say I'm happy to turn the leaf on the technical issues. I think there are ways to make this work, but they do involve perhaps some directive from either government, from government, basically, or perhaps from private foundations and so on that that are investing and putting into this. And the idea is here's here's a question. I'm not I'm not a I'm not a policy person. So, but but from a from a, a prince. In principle, how about if it were we were to say that e-government, remote learning, e-health, all of these services, which are critical services, and by are, are what the UN means by connectivity is is a human right. Okay, uh, all of those services uh, have to be other other than the telepresence aspect, which they may have have to be deliverable over what I'm calling basic broadband. Over in a That means they're going to have to have uh, apps that are stateful enough and, and, and they're going to have to be developed in a way that, that can work on that kind of a network, okay? And so the point is that would not keep them, there would be no issue of backward compatibility. They would not not work on ordinary, on on full broadband, let's call it. But if that were the case, then that would create now a a market. If you can can put thin clients out there that can do the the edge work that's necessary, 
And then if you can implement very cheap networks in you know the same way that people are trying to do community networks, people are trying to do, I would just point out, I don't know, you know, uh, the the FCC or the FCC, I don't know which agency, I think it's the FCC, one of those agencies, and maybe it's the NTIA, they just decided satellite broadband uh, Starlink didn't count because it was not high enough quality right. for for well it does it doesn't have the right upload it would be speeds. high enough sorry yeah it doesn't have any high enough upload speeds I think is right, what they right. came out to so yeah. so but this is this this is it, it certainly would be good enough to support basic broadband okay so so there is this uh, idea that what we are doing in in uh, trying to subsidize what is inherently a very costly service uh, is it are we only doing it because we haven't really considered this other alternative which doesn't look if 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 it were possible to simply give full broadband to everyone pay for it and implement it and maintain it they would be that would obviously be a, a great world there are reasons to believe that isn't happening now and, and that it won't happen. And this would be a way of, of dealing with that. So, so that would be the, the idea to, to uh, prescribe the, the development of applications. You're right, commercial developers would not be in a hurry to do it initially. But if a market, uh, if there was a, a target audience that emerged of people connected in this way and with devices that were capable, I think you'd find commercial developers as stepping up to, to port their applications into those domains in order to, to reach the additional market. I, I, th I think it's a, a really interesting concept because for so long, people who develop applications have just, the network has always been there for them. Um, and to tell them now, well, you actually have to use these other libraries if you want to be on the network or you have to do these other things. I could see a lot of resistance to that, not just from individual developers like we were talking about, but um, this market has to justify like the size of this market has to justify the initial, um, you know, the initial uh, investment required by people making applications. And, you know, one of the things that I'm thinking about, I grew up in a rural place. Uh, 300 people in my hometown, very, very crappy connectivity. And that market is, I mean, it's not all rural people, but, but a large chunk of the, uh, you know, broadband challenged people, at least in the United States are in rural areas. So there, there is no market that's going to be large enough to drive this from an investment standpoint. So, you know, there's other levers available, like you've talked about, but I, I it, it seems like a, it would be an interesting challenge. Well, as I say, there, there are application developers whose mission is to reach everyone, okay? And, and so that would be the primary uh, market. And, and, and the question of, of when it becomes worth people's while uh, to do commercial things, that is very hard to predict. Uh, there was a time when there was resistance to, uh, to building apps as opposed to web applications because of the additional overhead. Um, and that, the, turned out to be worthwhile, um, uh, and and the size of that market changed. Um, so, I mean, one thing to note: it, it is uh, an incremental cost to develop to develop apps that are capable of of working in these more challenged environments. 
but it's it's not separate applications. They will still work uh, in uh, perhaps better <laughs> in the full environment. I mean, something to note, they will tend to be more robust to disconnection, robust to um, uh, intermittent uh, uh, variability and bandwidth and in latency, which you find even in the best networks. I mean, these will in fact be applications that in some ways are better engineered. Um, and the, there is a question uh, of, of at, at what point it, it simply becomes worth it uh, because the, the infrastructure is there and the tools are there. Um, there's a time when it was thought that you needed uh, virtual circuits in order to build applications that were distributed because it was, it was gonna be difficult to work on a best effort network. Um, you know, we really kind of made that work pretty well, but it's, it took decades. So the other thing that I think we're fighting with this kind of an idea is that um, you talked about the telcos and the transport folks making money off of faster transport. But what we don't tend to think about in terms of faster transport and where I think we get into real trouble with net neutrality as a concept is the content providers are also very heavily invested in low latency, getting things at low latency to their users in near real time. And this is because they're, they, they, at least to some degree, and I don't want to get into a philosophical discussion about how these things work, but based on my research anyway, to some degree, they are beholden to fear of missing out. And, you know, so to some degree, you're, you're fighting against human nature as well, because I want to see that update of what that person, that friend of mine ate for dinner and get the comment in first so that they know I'm really their friend. Right. So <laughs> I, I, I would just, I, I agree with that altogether. And I think this is, this is a, a very important point. So I have to say, you know, part of this came out of my being located uh, in Tennessee and, and close to rural Appalachia. And so uh, being interested in a part of the problem that if I lived in Silicon Valley, maybe I wouldn't have even seen. I, I spent uh, a few years ago, a Fulbright scholarship year in Africa um, and have, have worked, uh, looked, visited schools that don't have electricity in rural areas or places that have uh, connectivity for a whole school, which is a single 3G mobile connection. The, these are the environments that do exist a lot, in fact, around the world and that uh, are, are part of the connectivity environment. So it's you use the word want, and I'm talking about what people need. Okay. Right. And, exactly. and, and, and I think the, the question is, is there's it's very convenient to believe that if we provision our world with what we want that will have the effect of getting what everyone needs to them. And that would be very nice for us if it were true. And that's essentially, I would say, the way that we've been uh, behaving. And I would say at this point, having just made the largest investment in, in uh, ITC ever, historically, and uh, looking at it, even though 
people don't say that it's going to bring universal broadband because they know it's not enough. But still, it is on a massive scale. I think it's worth asking, um, you know, is it self-serving? And perhaps if we do value the connectivity in the entire world, and there are reasons to do that, not just out of altruism, but for our own reasons, because, because it helps the world to be stable, it helps it to be more economically viable and integrated, do we perhaps need to, to rethink that strategy uh, in a way that, that has a better chance of, of accomplishing those goals of universality? I don't know. If, yeah. if I if I was someone offering content and I had money to spend, I would. Um, I was just thinking of this. You, you could also use this as a way to prime the pump of your audience. Now, if you can get connectivity to some place that doesn't have it at all, and I, and I think this is largely what Facebook and some others have tried to do with their with their efforts um, of you know providing connectivity in places that didn't have it. Uh, but this could potentially give you more more reach as a commercial interest. You know, provide the the needs the needs of the people and and give them a way to to connect and then you know at that point you can start to you know it's pretty easy to justify an investment when you have a certain number of eyeballs or a certain number of number of subscribers in a certain area i could see this also as a as a way to kind of drag that better connectivity out you know we were talking earlier about somebody who um, it was too expensive to to uh uh, have another ISP come to the place so they built one themselves. Well, then, if those costs are already taken care of, the the economics of the situation change. And and I don't think anybody here would argue with the fact that broadband does um, provide access to people that could can that does change their lives. And so, like it's a, I, I could see this as a way to prime the, you know, extend the infrastructure to where it needs to go. That's that's the idea. The idea is again, there's what people need. Uh, and what we need them to have. And then there's the question of what we want and differentiating between those two. Uh, there's always the risk that, um, that, that, that people, once they have their fundament, most fundamental needs, more, more of them met, that, that they won't, no one will care about them getting the higher level of service. And that's something that, that uh, we have to work against. But the, the, other, the other side of that coin is, well, if they never get any connectivity uh, or if they only get connectivity at a cost that is too high and that perhaps uh, uh, in order, if you think about it, you know, in order to get the most basic kinds of services, uh, you have to pay for connectivity that is much more capable. Um, you know, is that really serving, uh, serving those people and serving those communities? Yeah, and that's that's definitely true. So, the other thing you say about what we're, we're working against, though, is typically people, a lot of people, when they hear this idea, have a very either defensive uh, reaction or, or sometimes they find it, they claim they find it very hard to understand. And that is, that is because uh, I think, maybe because I'm explaining it poorly, but it may also be because we have come to associate uh, networking, not with the, the needs that we're fulfilling, but the means we're using to fulfill them. And that's how we define them. And uh, it requires a, a stepping back and, 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 and reevaluating the means uh, to, to sort of get the idea that uh, something that 
is is less capable could actually be uh, on the flip side much more easily made universal. So the other question then is how to get anyone to pay attention from a, from a policy point of view. Um, I, I yeah. think from a network point of view, it's, it's it makes a lot of sense. You could say we haven't proven it because we haven't implemented it at scale, but I think it's, it, I believe it's not hard to make a case that it's worth a shot. But the question of how to make an impact on policy, that's tough. That's tough for me as an academic. I will. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, this is where somebody like the Internet Society or even the Internet Architecture Board and stuff like that, having things around workshops in this area and stuff could have an impact by just getting people to pay attention and just say, yeah, this is a real problem. Um, I know Fred Baker was working in this space a long time ago around Africa, working with something called ant routing. And, you know, part of the kind of joke about avian carrier pigeon running the internet over avian carrier pigeon came actually came out of that work. It wasn't, I mean, it was a fee, it was facetious, but it was also at the same time kind of like, all right, we got to provide email access somehow. Like this is crazy. And, you know, the idea of relay routing and stuff like that came out of this as it came out of that work as well. So I do think this is a major area to deal with. And I, and like you, I'm not sure how to get to the point where people pay attention to it and care. Well, well, I think, I, I think demonstrating the, uh, the, not that I have any answers, but um, demonstrating what it, what it would I'm do so for disappointed, a community. Tom. I know I'm here to ask <laughs> questions. I'm just the host. <laughs> <laughs> I think demonstrating what it means in the lives of people is probably what gets people's attention. Um, you know, you, you can lose the policymakers really fast talking about bits and bytes, but you know how you would do that. I don't know, but if there's somebody who could, you know, community that would benefit and then this, this thing shows up and provides the benefits, that's, it's pretty hard to argue with. Yes. And so that's what I've been looking for. I've been looking for the opportunity to do a pilot in some community where the need or the specificity of the circumstances are so great that uh, it overcomes the sort of uh, lack of familiarity or a sense that they would prefer other alternatives if they were available. Uh, there is actually a, a place where this has been, again, not deployed in practice, but built out to a, a demonstration, uh, an active demonstration level. And that is in uh, a project, which is uh, my colleague, uh, Martin Sweeney and his group at the uh, Indiana University, and a group at Michigan Technological University headed by an ecologist named Nancy French, I have been working on data management in wildfire scenarios, a situation in which really the only way that they communicate at this point is by bringing in mobile LTE towers. Um, and, and that's the only way they can get to the fire front. And so they are actually working there with what we call data ferrying, which is not the pair carrier pigeon, but is not that far, uh, where we have uh, storage units, not flash drives, a little bit fancier with wireless and uh, Raspberry Pi processors integrated, uh, carried in backpacks, carried on vehicles. Uh, there's talk about carrying them in aerial drones and getting data out to handheld devices 
in the field uh, and and uh, making it available over local Wi-Fi then. So that actually has been shown. I was it was funded by NIST, and there are efforts. It's uh, continued to the underlying uh, work uh, software is is. Uh, under continuing funding by the National Science Foundation. So it is out there in that form, but it's a very niche form. And it is also very hard to, to harden and, and, and bring up to the level of development that people can rely on it when they rely on it for their lives. Uh, so that's, that's a long path. But that is the one case uh, where we've had a project that, uh, and most of the rest of it has been pilots and prototypes Actually, quite frankly, as I mentioned, more in the uh, of the same software and the same architectural idea, but in the context of data intensive science. Yeah. And one thing we forget when we think about applications is that we tend to think that if the application runs over the network, then it has a single connection speed and a single everything needs to be you know, at the same speed. But the reality is, I mean, one of the things that that we realized early on when I was working for VeriSign and then LinkedIn was that you can pre-stage parts of things and then get away with near real-time communication for smaller pieces of data and faster flows. And you don't actually miss the FOMO. You don't actually miss the real-time information. You just don't realize that it's being done that way. Like there's no reason that a game couldn't download to your local computer the entire like level when you jump onto that level and then only have small packets that they send that indicate where the other players are and what they're doing. And those small packets could be carried over a cell phone connection or something like that. We just don't often develop applications that way. We just kind of make the assumption that the network is going to be high bandwidth and and high and low latency. We'll be able to build whatever we want to and throw it across the link. So I just thought that was that's that's another interesting point. But it goes back to application developers deciding, yeah, we know how to do this, or, or we're willing to take on the work of doing this. So, so in general, you could say that there's been a, a transfer of the of much of the burden from because a lot of these techniques were used early on. I mean, you want to talk about separating yeah. graphics from from interactivity. I remember uh, disks uh, that were distributed by AOL, which mm -hmm. contained all the graphics for online the online service and which were loaded onto a PC and, and which were sent through the mail. I mean, that was a form of, of this kind of optimization. So it, it happens when it's necessary. We have had a, an approach of, of, of moving the investment into the network and alleviating it from the developers and from, from the edge. Uh, and that has worked really well in the part of the world where we can do, in, it's not just the part of the world, in those environments where that's practical, which has, has worked quite well for, for many important environments. So the issue here is not whether that worked well and, and continues to work well in those environments. The question is, can it be made truly universal? Right. And that you yes. have to come back to that, because if you're not asking that question, the answer is going to be clearly you can do a lot in uh, an important part of the world. And if that's enough for you, 
then this kind of solution is is not called for. Right, right. So yeah. So I think this is all really interesting. I don't have a lot more to add to it. I think you've done a good job of presenting what you're doing. We will try to at least push a copy, uh, a link to the paper when we publish. When is this being published in IEEE? So it's coming out in uh, October uh, in the IEEE uh, 19th International uh, Mobile Ad Hoc and Smart Systems Conference in Denver. Okay. And it's going to be presented there. And um, yeah, so it is. Uh, uh, it will it will be available there, but it's um, uh, yeah, it's available online now. We, we'll point to that. Yeah, PDF. And uh, I'm really eager to hear feedback, both from I'm always e- eager to hear people who are skeptical about this. I will say um, I know the policy skepticism and the question of markets. The technical side is 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 also um, something that it needs development and and needs to be well understood. And so I'm I'm, I'm particularly interested in in uh, sharp technical uh, critiques of, of this idea or uh, things have from people who who know a lot lot about the costs, for instance, of uh, uh, edge uh, environments, because there is this question of how much it's going to cost to build out additional edge environments to support uh, storage and processing. So that kind of thing, I just want to say, I'm really eager to hear anything anyone has to say about this. And if anyone has ideas about pilot projects, uh, ways of of proposing this for environments in which it it would make a difference and it would show the potential of the approach, that I'm always looking and 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 very eager to engage in that. Okay, awesome. And we might actually have ideas there too. We can talk, Micah, offline about some of the things we might think about there. All right, awesome. Well, I don't have anything else, Tom. You have anything? Nope, nope. Thanks for joining us. Nope. Well, I, w- I want to thank you for this opportunity. This yeah. has been great. I was yeah. uh, uh, like, uh, we need to get together in person now. You've been uh, in the neighborhood here for for a while. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Russ, and I'm, and we I'm actually on campus. Together. Yeah, I'm actually on campus about once a week now. So for really? various reasons. Well, I, I'm I'm teaching in in person now. Okay. Uh, so uh, we should we should definitely get together. Yeah, Tom. I don't even know where you are. Where are you located? I'm in Austin, but if you come by, let me know, and we'll get together. Actually, you know, I'm, uh, I've submitted a paper to Hotnets, which is in uh, Austin this year. So if I'm accepted, uh, I'll, I'll be coming good. there. Awesome. Great. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, Tom, where can people reach you or follow you on your non-existent blog? Um <laughs> Well, his blog is like a Romulan warship. That's that's what that's it is. right. That's right. It, it's, it's there. <laughs> well, if anyone's interested in other things I have to say, I don't I actually put what would be blog posts. I put them up on on LinkedIn. And okay. so people can find me. People on LinkedIn. can follow you on LinkedIn. I, I put them out there in articles. You can find them associated with my profile. All right. Awesome. And you, Tom, is it just LinkedIn still yeah. and Twitter or LinkedIn, are you doing Twitter. anything I else? said something on Twitter for the first time in like six months yesterday. So yes. Oh, wow. LinkedIn and Twitter. Okay. Well, we got you started with a microblog. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, and Micah, we'll point people to your LinkedIn profile as well. So they can follow you there uh, in the show notes if they want to. And uh, thanks for coming on. I'm Russ White. You can always find me here at the hedge rule 11.tech. 
I don't know, LinkedIn, wherever. I'm pretty easy to find. So thanks for coming by and joining us for this episode of The Hedge, and we'll catch you next time. Subscribe to The Hedge on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.